This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. I wonder why people don't just get on with it. I mean, we've all made a bunch of choices in our life, right? A Mm -hmm. bunch of choices. I didn't start doing what I'm doing now as a venture capitalist until I was in my early 50s. Mm -hmm. Most people who are in this role, are many of them are in their 20s. So I've taken, you know, 30 additional years to get to the same point, or at least 20 additional years to get Mm -hmm. to a point of actually starting down this road. So what was I waiting for? It's great to be back and start the first episode of season three, a season dedicated to the arts, creativity and social change. You know, I'm a big believer in surrounding myself with people from diverse backgrounds who think in very different ways to me. I don't need to agree with all my friends in order to connect with them. In fact, I find it really enriching. And particularly as a creative, I like to seek out people who don't work in my industry and or are very business minded. Rather than taking away from my creativity, I honestly feel that they add to it. And so is the case with my guest today, serial entrepreneur, investor and tech executive, Eric Collins. All of that was born very early. I mean, I don't know whether it's in vitro that, that you know, from the time I was in the womb, Mm. that this was what I was taught, but it was very clear that whether you were in church and singing or whether you were on the streets and marching, whether you were in class and, and studying, all of it was part of the same, of the continuum of the struggle to make sure that at the end of the day, you could help make the world a better place. You could help to empower not just a race, but a whole people. And that when you left this earth, that it would be better off than when you entered this earth. And you had a personal contribution to make to that. I met Eric about five years ago at one of those dinner parties where you sit around the table wondering, how did I end up here? Me, a somewhat struggling artist, sitting around the table with a lord and lady, literally a lord and a lady, some venture capitalists and startup entrepreneurs, and I was seated next to Eric, charming and funny and, it turns out, absolutely formidable. So let me tell you a little bit about Eric. He did his undergrad at Princeton with Michelle Obama, of all people, and then was at Harvard Law School with Barack Obama. I mean, what are the odds? Eric moved into business and has spent a career building the value of digital companies through innovative strategies. Companies like AOL, Time Warner, SwiftKey Microsoft, and most recently, Touch Surgery, where he was COO. In 2018, Eric, along with a prominent group of black European and American serial entrepreneurs, institutional investors, investment bankers, corporate leaders and entertainers, founded ImpactX Capital Partners. The venture capital firm invests in underrepresented innovators in Europe, which we talk about in more detail in our interview. 
Eric currently features on new UK Channel 4 TV series, The Moneymaker, providing expert advice and his own capital investment to small, struggling British businesses. He also has an upcoming book, We Don't Need Permission, out next year. To learn more about Eric's work in the arts and in tech, head to the podcast blurb to read his full bio. We talk about his childhood growing up in North Carolina and his commitment to serving underrepresented groups to, as Eric likes to say, leave the world better than we found it. We talk about his work in business at the start of the internet boom, why he and his colleagues set up ImpactX. But what we don't have is we don't have a Spotify, we don't have a Netflix, mm. and we don't, and that's what we're looking for. We don't have an Uber, we don't have an Airbnb. That's the kind of scale that ImpactX is trying to grow. So I need to make it very clear when I'm talking to people that we believe that's the solution. We don't believe just ownership yeah. is the solution, although that's good. You know, own whatever it is, have a dream, but we're trying to build the behemoths. We talk about his work in the arts, about the importance of capital investment and how it can be used to bring about lasting generational change for people of colour. We talk about deferring gratification in the pursuit of long-lasting impact. And all the artists that you mentioned in the apartment, all of that has to do with people who have made a, as much of an investment. They might not have made the financial investment, but they have made a personal investment in all of that called their career. And they continue to do it at an extraordinary rate. And they're willing to take resources away from something else in order to make that happen. They are dyed in the wool. And if indeed you find someone like that, even a person who's a little less talented, but is tenacious, mm. I take little less talented and tenacious over extremely talented and, and flighty. I think that there is a very, very big difference in terms of outcomes. It's, a, it's an investment decision. And of course... We talk about music. Eric Collins, thank you so much for taking the time to let me interview you today. Thank you very much, Matsy, for having me. It's always a privilege to talk to someone who is not only working in the arts, but then um, is thinking about how to deliver a message that's not just their normal practice, which is a musician. So this is good. Oh, thank you. So um, for those that don't know you, you are a serial entrepreneur, investor, technology executive, patron of the arts. You have patronized me in, you know, like you're someone that um, I have played gigs at your, I played at your house. You're extremely uh, generous with your resource, with resources, with your time. Um, I always like to ask people, I guess, if you like their origin story, tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you've got started. I know you have an American accent. So tell us a little bit about how Eric came to be Eric. Now, the one thing that I would announce on this um, on this podcast is that I did gain British citizenship in December of 2020. So now I am an American with British privileges. Let's call it that. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I, if you are, to, if you were to look back when you mentioned my intro, in the introduction, sort of the things that I do and that we do as a family, that Michael and me do as a family, I would say that it is all based on the same origin that I've come from the American South. I've come from a civil rights background, meaning that I was born during a time when, you know, the civil rights movement was in full swing. I was born to parents who were uh, teaching at a historically black college and university in the very deep South in um, Alabama. It was called, it's called Tuskegee University. It was Tuskegee Institute when I was born. And it, it's known for everything from the famous syphilis trials, um, which then, you know, denied medical care to men with syphilis in order to see sort of what would be the um, response of their bodies over time, eventually killing them, obviously, mm. making them go crazy, all the way through to the Tuskegee Airmen and all the way through to the Commodores. It's, Tuskegee is known for a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. But it's also, because of where we come from, it also is, as you see those three different elements, there is uh, business, there's arts, and all of that's considered part of the same type of world in which we live and the responsibility to each one of those in terms of the advancement and the empowerment of people of color, of people who are marginalized, mm -hmm. of people who are systemically excluded. All of that was born very early. I mean, I don't know whether it's in vitro that, that it, you know, from the time I was in the womb, mm -hmm. that this was what I was taught, but it was very clear that whether you were in church and singing, or whether you were on the streets and marching, whether you were in class and, and studying, 
all of it was part of the same, of the continuum of the struggle to make sure that at the end of the day, you could help make the world a better place. You could help to empower not just a race, but a whole people. And that when you left this earth, that it would be better off than when you entered this earth. And you had a personal contribution to make to that. So again, whether or not it's in the arts and helping with um, you know talented people like yourself, or whether or not it's in business, which is what I spend most of my time doing, investing, it's all part of the same. And it's all part of the um, continuum that we need to actually toil through. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I know you, you know, you went to Princeton, you went to Harvard Law School. Um, I feel like you have told me that you were there at the same time as President Barack Obama, or am I making that up? <laughs> it's a good story, isn't it? If you weren't making it up, you should make it up. <laughs> it's actually true. I, but I find that these days, the more interesting point is not just that Barack Obama was there when I was in law school and that we you know, started off law school together and continued uh, throughout our law school career, um, but that there were so many extraordinary people who coexisted in space. Sometimes it seems to be serendipity that people meet and from those meeting, all sorts of sparks happen. So when I met you, for instance, I met you at a dinner at someone's yes. at a friend's house, at yep. a mutual friend's house, and all sorts of sparks happen. And from there, it's not just that we have had that introduction, we then sort of track each other on LinkedIn or that we sort of become uh, you know, Instagram followers. But what we do is then determine, are there things and actions that can, ha that can happen from there? Barack obviously went, um, and with a lot of support from the various people who were at that law school, um, you know, went on and has done great things uh, and historic things that will be um, written down in, uh, in books and talked about for generations and maybe forever. Uh, there have been other people who we don't know as famous as Barack who are doing fantastic things, whether they be um, professors, whether they be um, government workers, whether they be um, civil rights attorneys. There are just so many people who said that, you know, I have a role to play, put my, um, put my shoulder to the wheel and let's keep pushing. One thing that's fascinating is that's law school. So in the United States, for your listeners who aren't familiar, we have an undergraduate system. So after high school, you go to university generally for four years. And then afterward, uh, if you're like me, you then study law as a secondary degree, a postgraduate degree for you know, three additional years. So that's when I met Barack. I met Michelle Obama, though, in undergrad. And right. I think that's a more impressive piece because she was um, a student at Princeton. Her brother had gone to Princeton. She went to Princeton. My brother went to Princeton, was in her class. And then I was a little bit younger. And so, um, you know, we overlapped there, uh, but not as much as the overlap with Barack. Fantastic. You know, it's, it's interesting listening to, to you and I think this about a lot of people. There are so many people doing extraordinary things and they just get on with it. And we might not know their names, but they are really making tremendous impacts and, um, on, in the way that the world functions and in so many different ways. And I, I want to talk to you, and you're one of those people, that had I not been at that random, supposedly random dinner, I would never have known you existed. But I want to talk about how you got into tech um, mm -hmm. and then we're going to talk a bit about Impact X Capital Partners what you, the, the organization that you started but tell me how you went from Princeton to law school into business and tech. My first day of law school I knew I'd made the wrong choice. Right. So let's be clear. I got to law school and I had gone to law school in order to become a politician. That's exactly why I went to law school. They, my name, there was a joke when I was growing up in my church. I went to a very large um, activist church in uh, the South, the progressive Baptist church called um, Shiloh. And at Shiloh, I was called the governor. The minister wow. decided that I was the guy, and that that was the intention. So there was the intention was Eric is going to do all the right things. He's done all the right things. He's going to do all the right things. He's going to come back from Princeton. He's going to run for governor. Let him go into law school, but he's going to come back and run for governor, and he would be the first black governor of North Carolina. So um, you know that was that was not only someone else's idea, but it was mine. I thought it would be a great idea, and it still needs to happen. There's not been a black governor of North Carolina, although there have been black governors in the United States. Uh, when I went to law school, though, the first class that I had was a contracts class, and it was the most esoteric thing I'd ever seen. And it was something that felt so out of kilter with what I had hoped to have happen. 
its style of teaching was a Socratic method. So there's a professor up front who's standing up and, and looking at a looking at a board and on the board this is truly how it was each name is associated with the seat and the professor would call on you randomly and say mr collins tell us about this case Mm. and it's like and that would be sort of your learning and there'd be this socratic meaning he would ask you questions it's not that he would or she would mine was a professor was a man it's not that she would, you know, try and embarrass you or intimidate you, but it's just, it's so high risk kind of um, standing up for public performance purposes. It was very performative. And I was like, eh, I don't love this very, very much. So I immediately applied, like in my first week in law school, having spent, you know, one week of classes, decided I was going to business school. And the only way I was going to survive law school was joining it with business school. Business school has a whole different application process, and I did. Let's just say I did not get into Harvard Business School, and they they were very clear: you are not going to get into Harvard Business School without some business experience, Mr. Collins. So go go do what you're going to do. So I then had to rethink what I did in law school, and so then I started to make law school because of my connection in the Harvard community. And any student who is there at the graduate level, you can take classes elsewhere. I just started to do that. I started to create my own curriculum so that I could then have the experiences, which made me able to, during the summers, I worked at Skadden Arps, a big merger and acquisition firm in New York. I worked in Atlanta to test out that market in a company that did a lot of venture capital. So I spent a lot of time uh, testing out. And at the end of law school, the thing that I knew is that I didn't want to practice law. Um, just wasn't for me. And so then I joined one of my professors that started a consulting firm. So I joined this consulting firm. It was a strategy consulting firm focused on the most fascinating things. What is the one or two transactions within the life of a company that are never going to happen again? You're going to acquire a company. You're going to merge with a company. You're going to try and there's going to be a... um, a strike and you have to like a, a, a labor a labor unrest, you've got to settle that. We would go only into those sort of most high profile and most uh, high value transactions and help to solve them. And so it was this is a guy named Roger Fisher, who was one of my mentors. He wrote a book called Getting Just, a very famous business book, you know, sold millions and millions of copies. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who brought me into his um, consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I was able to translate that into advising top-level executives about what they need to do, which just changes your whole mindset and gets you to see a lot of different, from banking to services companies to technology companies to entertainment companies. So I did all of those to labor unions. And I did all of those categories. And the ones that really stuck were media and entertainment, as well as technology. And from there, I was able to construct a life. I actually eventually became a partner in the firm and I spun out my first startup. I then said, all these things that we're doing, I can systematize that and I can make it into a technology-driven solution that's going to help with a lot of stuff that's going to happen. And when I was getting out, this is at the very beginning of the internet. So I'm early on in the digital age. It's like, there's all sorts of digital transactions. There's all sorts of inefficiency. I got something. Mm-hmm. I then went through the process of you know, incorporating the business. I went through the process of um, finding people to work with me, building out uh, an MVP, so a minimally viable product. I did all of that sort of stuff, went for funding, and then the internet bubble burst. Right. Um, there was so, you know, we're in a frothy period now. There's a really frothy period then. And it just sort of burst just as I was getting my first funding, my first institutional funding. And that sort of put me back on my heels and I need to do something else. I said, I'm going to stay in technology. I went to work in an organization called AOL. Mm-hmm. I went to work in the mobile division. This is in 2001. Think about mobile. You're too young for this. But think <laughs> about mobile in 2001. You had candy bar phones. Mm-hmm. You had uh, analog devices. There's none yes. of this. You know, there's no Samsung, Android. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no iPhones. There's ju- there is a BlackBerry, but that's like really high end. And everyone else is just texting and playing, you know, little games on their um, black and white screens. They're tiny little screens. In case that's where I started, I started running a division within AOL that was considered a real backwater. But the funny thing is for me, all these backwaters have proven to be opportunities because if it's a backwater, no one's really watching it. And wow. you know, if you can get in there and you can say, let me, let me twist and turn this a little bit. So we were able to take a company that was doing $5 million of revenue with pretty good margins. We were able to, as a team, take that to $100 million in two wow. years. 
and my reputation was made. That is the beginning of my reputation because I chose a, I chose to be in an organization AOL, which was you know had just purchased Time Warner. There had been a merger, so it was big news. When I was in a little division, mobile, no one knew about, no one was really thinking about because you know people were just getting online. Um, America Online, that's AOL, America Online, nice. and then. I was in a mobile division, which was even more obscure. And then I was in software, which now is called apps and now called AI. That's okay. what I was doing. That's in 2002. That's what wow. I was doing. That. So I've been doing that kind of thing for a long, long time. And it's allowed me to then be acquired. I got acquired. The company, the division I was running got acquired by Nuance Communications, which does all sorts of input technology, speech-to-text, text-to-speech, handwriting, mm-hmm. as well as text input. They just got purchased by Microsoft. The announcement uh, this month that they're being purchased by Microsoft. So I got purchased by them, and then Microsoft has now purchased them. I went. To, I did another um, advertising tech company, a COO. I came here to the UK in 2014 mm-hmm. to work at SwiftKey, which was a technology company, um, an input technology company that sold to Microsoft two years later. I then went to this company called um, Touch Surgery slash Digital Surgery that sold in 2020 to Medtronic, um, a big um, a big um, uh, medical device company on the robotic side. And so I've just been doing those types of things and have tried to put myself in the flow of opportunity, which then gets us to ImpactX and how that all comes about. This is fantastic. I have so many questions, but let's talk about... Let's talk about Impact X. I was reading in the FT um, some uh, the Financial Times at some point last year, and they were just talking about Brexit, and they were talking about mm-hmm. how most tech innovation doesn't happen in Europe. It mainly happens in the States, a little bit in France. And with Brexit, people are a bit concerned with where is all the tech going to happen in Europe? You start Impact X. Um, with um, some other phenomenal people. Collectively, you guys have managed over £12 billion. You focus on digital and tech, health, education and lifestyle and media entertainment. But your tagline is that you invest in underrepresented, underrepresented innovators in Europe. Talk to me about that and why. Everyone who's an investor and Everyone, most people on this call are investors of some sort because they have savings, which they want a little bit of interest on. They have a home that they want to get an increase in value when they sell it. They have a portfolio based on their pension or they purchase stocks and they are trying to then get the value to go up, deliver dividends, whatever it is. But there are various types of investing. When I am investing, what I'm looking for is to not just get money back, mm-hmm. but to be able to have two different outcomes. One is capital. It is absolutely important in the world in which we live, and I believe that's a world in which we should, that there is capital that is created, that value is increased, and then that increased value is distributed. Right. In addition to that, so that's investing. In addition to that, there is the need to do some things which are socially beneficial at the same time. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be an afterthought. It's not the primary focus, but it's a strong secondary focus. And ImpactX is a strong secondary focus of job creation because our belief, Matsy, is that if we are going to solve the problem of why one in two Black families in the UK live in poverty mm. versus one in, one, in, one in two Black families in the UK live in poverty, whereas one in five white families in the UK live in poverty, and this was as of 2019, this is before covid I'm not talking about post-COVID, and goodness knows what those numbers must look like now, that we've got to do something which is a permanent and sustainable solution. We've used the ballot box. We have marched. We have demanded our rights. We have done it as individuals within organizations that were you know, built 150 years ago, 370 years ago, and we have gotten so far that what we need to do is we need to incorporate some other strategies. And my belief is that those strategies should be generation-changing strategies. I do not want to have the conversation, Matsy, 10 years from now, mm. of what could have happened and look at where we are. And we are at the same place that we had been, and it's just getting worse. I'm not interested in being part of that narrative. 
Neither are the people who came on board. Mm -hmm. We are saying that what we want to have happen, if we're going to put our resources behind making this happen, is we want to create generation-changing organizations. We want a black woman from Birmingham. We want an Asian man from Bristol to start an organization that is of the scale of Amazon. And that's what we're backing. We are backing that kind of a dream. You know, we are fantastic. It's fantastic to start the restaurants and other things, but we're saying we want these organizations that deal with the world across border, Mm. that governments have to think about what to do about them, that they're a problem for governments, they're an issue for, um, you know, societies and communities. That sort of participation and enfranchisement in decisions around the world is a very different sort of a thing. You know, we have some public companies that are relatively large. Um, Mo Ibrahim's company. We have big companies like Tristan Capital by Rick Lewis. Yeah. But what we don't have is we don't have a Spotify. We don't have a Netflix. Mm. And we don't, and that's what we're looking for. We don't have an Uber. We don't have an Airbnb. That's the kind of scale that ImpactX is trying to grow. So I need to make it very clear when I'm talking to people that we believe that's the solution. We don't believe just ownership yeah. is the solution, although that's good. You know, own whatever it is, have a dream. I would suggest if you dream that I want to own a restaurant or I want to own a salon, that we then dream a little bit bigger and say, I want to own a group of restaurants and a group of, because that is exactly, because you can hire more people, you can turn over more capital, and then you can actually use that to do other sorts of things. But, you know, I'll let people do those other sorts of things, the small and medium-sized businesses, but we're trying to build the, the behemoths. And we believe the behemoths will drag the world into a different place. If you're a black woman, you're going to hire more black women. You see that as reasons for being in the C-suite. You see reasons why there should, you should have black people on the board. You see why you should have black women in charge of the engineering organization. You know why you should have black women in charge of PL. We don't have to go back and do a, a D and EI sort of a retrofit of organizations when someone finally believes because George Floyd gets murdered on television that we ought to spend some time you know, solving the problem mm-hmm. from the beginning in our very DNA of these companies, there will be a different approach to actually participating in the world. The people who are around the table have the same belief. We believe, in fact, that this is an empowerment circle, that if you start these companies, you give people opportunities, people will stay and maximize the opportunity, go to other organizations or start their own. Capital will be released. When that capital is released, meaning there will be some sort of an exit, some will go public, some will do something else, that in fact, what will happen from there is that people will not just pay off their student loans. People will not just buy a house. People will not just have philanthropic ventures. What they will do is then put money back into the system, and and they will then fund the next generation. So therefore, it's sustainable, i.e., there's capital coming in, there's return happening, and people feel that. And they say, I got to throw more money behind that. I've got to invest going all the way back to the beginning of my statement. That is investing. And then I want to invest in that because it will return not only on the capital side, but it will do all those other things, those byproducts I want to see, which is net worth increases. I want to get rid of inequity in education. I want to get rid of health disparities. I want to get rid of wealth disparities. Those things are addressed as byproducts. And so people like Ursula Burns, the first black woman to run a Fortune 500 company when she ran Xerox. Rick Lewis, who has the biggest black business in the UK with Tristan Capital. Mm-hmm. Lenny Henry. That's a wide range of people. Yeah. You know, Sir Lenny Henry, that's a huge range. They all are investors in Impact X and have a similar belief that we can actually get this outcome of making the world within a generation a better place mm-hmm. if we have the right kind of companies that we're actually starting and that we are and we are in charge of and that we are actually going through the venture process because a venture a venture scale return think mm. about this we are saying to our investors we need to return to you within 3 years 3 or 4 years at the most mm. we want to take an investment and give you back 10 times what we put in it 3 to 10 times that's venture investing mm. that's not sort of you buy a house you get, and then the house doubles in value in 20 years. It's a very different, it's a very different scale. And that's the scale that lots lots of people are playing in. And we have not, as women and people of color, played in that scale uh, to win. And that's where we are as Impact X. I feel like if you were running for governor, I would vote for you. But here is what I love about what you've been saying. And I, I'd love, you know, I have I have interviewed you in another capacity before. But the thing that really strikes me about you 
is that you don't look at the limitation, you look at the opportunity or with whatever limitation or obstacle there is, how you can resolve it. And I was, um, I was talking to some people about York, about Impact X, about some, uh, uh, particularly somebody I know who, a, a, a black man who has this tech idea. And one of the things I noticed is there is such a distinct, at times, lack of confidence this sort of feeling of feeling so the ideas are there but this feeling of we can't do it because x y and z i've tried before um and it didn't work i got burned and so the confidence to 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 push your idea the confidence to to start something and develop it i have noticed it lacking a lot and mm-hmm. one thing i noticed with you is that you just get on with it and so i would I'm interested to know what your response would be to people that have these ideas, but they really just think it's just too hard because of, you know, they might say, look, systematic racism. They might say, I have tried so many times. I don't know. People don't want to invest in me um, and I'm just exhausted. What would you say in response to that? What's your choice? What, what, what choice do you have um, but to continue to push the rock uphill. Mm-hmm. And let me assure you, I'm pushing a boulder uphill. We raised back in 2019, we raised about 4 million pounds. Mm-hmm. That was our pilot fund to invest mm-hmm. in um, black businesses. That's 4 million, not 4 billion, 4 yeah. million. That was to prove a thesis. So with a relatively small amount of money, we said we have to, we have to put our resources in. We're going to have this experiment and we're going to go for it. So, you know, Lenny, Ursula, Rick put their money in, Vivian Hunt puts her money in and we get all the people who have real belief and we start to push that rock and we start to prove and we start to show and demonstrate that what we're doing is making results. Mm. And when I say making results, it's not making results and so that we're investing in companies, it's that we're returning capital. I think this is the thing that people don't necessarily always appreciate. It's not we're not so much focused on how many companies we've invested in, but how much return we've actually created for organizations uh that are called limited partners and high net worth individuals who mm. are called limited partners. That's what we're that's what we're because those people need to continue putting money behind us. If we really want the endowment of Cambridge to put money behind us, they're not just going to give me money to because I'm not a charity. They're mm-hmm. going to give me money because I can return capital to yeah. them at a very, very high rate. And But we no, no one had ever proved this thesis before. No one had ever done it. So you know what we could do is we could say, oh, you know, no one has done it. Let's let's go back to our old jobs. But our old jobs have those same problems, right? It's not as though... I then start working at a big law firm and I suddenly find myself with a clear pathway to success because there's all those microaggressions that exist. There's all the systemic that exists everywhere, right? From my housing to my all sorts of things. So if a person came to me and said, I, I feel overwhelmed by the, the road ahead, mm. I would say the road ahead is going to be very, very difficult. Mm. But the road you're walking now is very, very difficult. And so the question is, what kind of results are you hoping to achieve? Mm. And are you going to do this all alone? I think there are lots and lots of allies. Uh, you know, For some organizations out there, we can only be moral support because we're not going to invest in them. We can help them to see that there are ways if they do different things going forward, they will eventually get enough traction to come to us. We can advise them. It's great that you have an idea, but if your idea and you're, and it's a technology idea, but if you can't code, how does that idea happen? Yeah. How do you get that idea to become an actual thing? And if you don't know then that if you can't code, you have to find someone who can code and then becomes a co-founder with you. And if you want to hold on to this so tightly because you want to be in charge, well, then you're going to be in a situation where, you know, a team of one can pull only so far. A team of two can pull much farther and much faster. And then eventually when you get to a team of a hundred, then you really got something going. So I would have people to look at, you know, here's what, here is the, and I think most people as you're talking about are talking about the risk. Yeah. They're focused on the risk and all the downside possibilities. <laughs> Those are the sorts of people that should buy. I call them belt and suspenders people. 
<laughs> because you need a lot of insurance, right? You need everything to be laid out. So mm-hmm. put on your belt, put on your suspenders, your pants, your, your trousers are not coming down because you got both belt and suspenders. If you're not focused on risk, but focus on opportunity, which is what I focus on, mm-hmm. then the risk profile becomes a bit different. Mm-hmm. So the risk, yes, could lose everything. However, the opportunity is that I could change the world. Mm. So would I be willing to risk what is a solid thing so that I could possibly have an even bigger thing at the end? And then for some people, a bird in the hand is much better than two in the bush. Mm. For me, a bird, you know, 10 in the bush is much more interesting than one in the hand. Mm. You know, me having enough money to go on vacation next year, to go on holiday, mm is not as interesting as me having put money into an into a young musician who has an album mm. because I think I can get more return out of that mm. than I can get out of my trip to Santorini. It would be nice to go to Santorini. Um, I'm sorry, and I'm, I miss Santorini. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something sensational. But when I think about sort of the things that I'd be willing to sacrifice in order to have the outcome that I'm looking for, mm. I would, I would be, I'm much more willing to sacrifice those types of things. Um, and some short term, it's, it's really tenacity and short term, um, short term fulfillment that has to be, that, that have to be balanced. My short term fulfillment, I have to eat and I have to live someplace. That's one thing. So yeah, I'm going to take care of those things. But the question of, and should I then be able to have six weeks of holiday and start a business? And if Eric is putting my, his money into you, does Eric really care about your six weeks of vacation? Mm. He cares about your mental health. Mm. So take what time you actually need. But I also care about the capital I have because there are a lot of people behind me, some hard-hearted capitalists who want their money back. Mm. And so if, if you're not going to be able to run the race that is necessary in order to you know, perform like an Olympian, mm. then I get it. But that's probably then not for you, for me to invest in you because I'm going to be putting too much pressure on you and it's not going to be good for you um, on the other side. Fantastic. I've gone a lot of different places, Matsy, but I, you know, when you when you mention this, I do think that there is something to be said for a person who is stepping into with an opportunity and looking at all the risks that indeed they need to sort of fully evaluate what is the opportunity. That's the other side of this that has to be taken into account. That's the long and short of it. Forget all the rest of it. Just take that last little bit. If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look or because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well, I was raised in London and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese and then they see my face and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. We have anti-discrimination laws, progress has been made, but governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation, with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech, to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, it's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it. And also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. And I think Airbnb have recognised that by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact, and secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much-needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups 
by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. No, and that's really helpful. I mean, I I have found, and I want to talk about your support of people in the arts, but I have found, and I say this to friends a lot, as someone who is creative, I actually think it's really important to move around people who think in very different ways. And, and as someone who's an investor like you and you're looking at the opportunity and you're just such a fast mover, I found that listening to your perspective and even just observing how you operate um, helps give me the drive that I need. Because sometimes you need to be around people that aren't always looking at the problems. It's because you know what the problems are. It's not that you don't know what the problems are, but you're like, well, we know there are problems and there are problems everywhere. What are you going to do with it? And so I feel like maybe I need like, you know, what what would Eric say like in my pocket? I feel stressed, Eric. What should I do? Eric says, just go for it. You need 10 birds in a bush rather than one in your hand. Yeah, I, I would say I, I do think that that's an interesting point, Matsy. It's it's like. I wonder why people don't just get on with it. I mean, we've all made a bunch of choices in our life, right? A mm-hmm. bunch of choices. I didn't start doing what I'm doing now as a venture capitalist until I was in my early 50s. Mm-hmm. There, most people who are in this role, are many of them are in their 20s. So I've taken you know, 30 additional years to get to the same point, or at least 20 additional years to get mm-hmm. to a point of actually starting down this road. So what was I waiting for? Mm. What are any of us waiting for? What would be the perfect set of circumstances as we go along, we fall in love, we decide that you know we 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 need more sleep, we need a place that's uh you know has more peace involved so we have to move to the country. There are all sorts of decisions that we make that are good decisions and that will then have an impact on how we are going to execute against a plan. And it's just a question of thinking about all of these in respect to, at least with me, mm-hmm. to think about these with, in respect to sort of how it fits into and how do I maintain, make sure I maintain all of them at the right level and still be able to fulfill the purpose that I have. It's not just the ambition that I have. You know, it's the purpose. And I go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. The purpose is to leave the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And the world is not made a better place because I bought more Gucci shoes. That's not exactly why the world is a better place. It might be a more attractive place. <laughs> um, you know, it might be, it's not just because I, um, you know, improved my tennis game tremendously. Mm-hmm. The world might be somewhat of a better place, but it's not a, a much, much better place. I'd have to then say to myself, what are the ways in which I'm going to incorporate all these and how do they all fit in order to help me to? But that's an Eric approach. I have to sometimes think to myself that if you grow up in church like I do, if you grow up in civil rights like I do, if you grow up with a family like I do, that's just how you view the world. Other people don't view the world necessarily in the same way. I do find that the way that I view the world helps to get people sort of oriented behind me. And it orients a lot of resources behind me that then I can put into play with people like you, Matsy, mm. because there are a number of people who are behind me. It's not because I'm not working alone. Eric Collins is hardly a solo act. Mm. The only way Eric Collins has a book called We Don't Need Permission, mm. I'm well writing a book called We Don't Need Permission, which is all about this question that you asked previously. To a person who says there are too many risks, I would say, this is coming out next year, mm. that they should they should think about what we say and we don't need permission. Who are you waiting and what are you waiting for? And why are you waiting for that? Mm. And so that's so because I don't think we need permission. Jeff Bezos to start Amazon did not ask permission from mm. somebody. Mm. May I, mother, may I start Amazon? Mm. Boris Johnson, may I start Amazon? My next door neighbor, may I start Amazon? He starts Amazon mm. um, and, and gets some people behind him. Uh, and likewise, we need to do the same sort of mm. thing. Mm. When I do think then about um, sort of 
my approach in the world, I do believe that there's also all these people who've been behind me to get me to the show called The Moneymaker on Channel 4. I mean, it's just like those things happen not because Eric Collins is a solo act, but Eric is part of a whole collaborative group of people who have interwoven interests and who have self-interest and oh, and some of them overlap with mine. And so we have a Venn diagram, That, but in, at our heart, the one thing that makes the real overlap is we all have a belief that the world has got to change and yeah. that we have a very important role in changing that. And it's not just for all of us, how much money we're making mm-hmm. and that that is, a, that is a marker of something. It's how much impact we're making. And money is a marker of impact, or it helps us to make another type of impact, but it's not the only marker as to are we billionaires, are we zillionaires? That's mm. not, that's really not it. Absolutely. So, you know, this thing about, and, and it's so interesting because there is this through line through your life. How do I leave the world a better place? You are, you are, as I said, a huge patron of the arts. You're on the board of Autograph, which is like a, uh, a photography exhibition space that represents, you know, uh, uh, black artists. Um, I have your house is full of extraordinary art. Everything you're doing, as you're saying, has multiple ramifications on other people. Mm-hmm. So, you mentioned you're on the show. You've there's a Channel Four program called The Money Maker that's a little like the CNBC series, The Profit. So tell us a little it's exactly bit of, like that. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about that and what you'll be doing. In the show, I'm taking a journey with entrepreneurs who are in challenging times in the world today, but I'm focusing only on the UK. And I'm focusing on four companies and four business owners who have started organizations within the last 10 years, gotten them to a certain size, and then bam, got hit with COVID. And so what do we do to make those organizations worthwhile? And it's not just what do we do in in terms of me talking to them. I'm putting my own money into these organizations to transform them. And think about it. When I've talked to you about the scale of return that I want, and I need a 10x return, so 10 times what I put in within a period of time, which is discernible. I don't need it 20 years from now. Mm. I need it within the next three or four years. And I'd rather have it in the next year or two. Mm. And how do I do that? It's not certainly the business plans that they have. It's what do we? What is a business plan that we can put in place? Because if we, if they were growing at this sort of rate, that would allow me to get ten times. They wouldn't then have to come to me for capital. They yeah. wouldn't be featured on this program. And the markets that they're in are very different. One is in a packaged food company mm-hmm. called Winnie's Meals that has frozen foods that are sent, Caribbean frozen foods that are sent around the UK. One is a company that is a award-winning sourdough bread-making company that makes bread, they make savories, they make sweets, and they, and they um, ship those to wholesalers as well as they do some direct delivery to home. There is another organization that does invisible repair in the construction trade, nice. meaning if you, if you ding your bathtub and get, take a chip out of it or your, or your countertop, they can make it, they can repair it so you've never seen. It looks like new and, you know, is guaranteed for, you know, decades into the future. Mm-hmm. And then it keeps the stuff out of landfill. Um, and then the final piece, the final organization is a, a mobile barber shop that is a mobile barber solution. It's not just a shop. It's a solution on wheels uh, for people who need to get their hair cut, all hair textures. Now, Matsy, do any of those sound to you like Uber? Do any of those sound to you like Airbnb in terms of that scale? Those are the kind, and so, but those are the organizations that here in the UK are struggling. And where are they going to get additional help? Where are they going to find, you know, the government will help with a bounce back loan and that sort of thing. But where are they going to sort of, where would they have gotten the experience to know in a situation like this, how do I not just survive, but how do I thrive? What are the tools that I need to incorporate? What is the, what are the resources and networks I need to access? So a person like me comes in and says, here, here are some resources, but this is the plan. Here's the journey we're going to need to take in order for me to be able to be satisfied and put my money into the organization. Mm-hmm. we got to transform this into something that's going to grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. And you got to get ready for a wild ride because this is going to be an aggressive amount of growth. That's what I'm doing right now. And over four weeks, four different companies, you'll get to see what happens from beginning to end when I meet them. 
when I value them in terms of what I'm going to, what is the value of the company so I can then put money in and how much of the company do I receive? What's the transformation and what's the result of that transformation? And remember, it's me. So it all has to come with a purpose. You, it can't just be you're just delivering money back. I got to see some purpose. I got to see that this is helping the world to be a better place in addition to getting my, me my money. And I don't think those two things need to be trade-offs. I always ask my guests what lessons have they learned that we can learn from. But I want to um, nuance this a little bit for you because the reason I asked you um, as a person that is in the business tech space is that I have on purpose put myself around people who don't think like me. And I will never forget the conversation I had with you when I was you know, talking about making my album and I'm thinking from this creative space, I'm thinking about all the musicians. And, and you said to me, well, how are you going to get a return on that? And I was like, uh, uh. <laughs> but it, and I was thinking, okay, well, people don't buy records anymore. People streaming doesn't make artists any money. And I remember you said to me, does it make sense to invest this much amount of money when you're not really going to get it back? I don't have those kind of conversations with creative people. We talk about the art. We talk about the beauty of making something. And so I wanted you to come on here in what is a predominantly a podcast for creatives and about the creative process. Um, although I actually believe what you do is still creative, you know, it's still a creative. Thing. But what lessons in the spaces that you're in have you learned that the creative people that are listening can learn from? Because I think there is, it, it is it's key, actually. Doing this, it's, it's fascinating because now that I am doing this program uh, on Channel 4, and now that I am writing a book through Random House, Random House is my publisher okay. here in the UK, a, a Black woman, uh, Andrea Henry, my Black female agent, uh, Natalie Jerome, my black female publicist, all black British women, wow. fascinating group. So the thing that I have learned is that there is an infrastructure which exists and that you have to go a little bit deeper, mm. possibly to tap it. But, you know, it didn't take me very long to find all of these people to help me to do the things that I'm doing. Put that aside for a second. Um, the reason I mentioned those things is because these are, these are creative domains. Mm. Writing is considered a creative domain. Mm. Doing a program is considered to be a creative domain. The funny thing about it is that what I have found is that the creatives that are in these spaces very much think from a business perspective. They don't just, you know, it's not just, oh, I am presenting a song and that song is a song that, um, that speaks to me. In some ways, they start off by thinking about who do I want to listen to what I'm producing? What is the audience that I am for whom I'm writing this? Now we can write it for ourselves. We can be super, super self-focused. And then we probably create for an audience of one. The people who I'm working with are saying, there are many different Britons. And both of these, the both projects I'm talking about are really British focused. They're not sort of worldwide focused. Mm -hmm. Trans World is a British publisher. Uh, and then uh, Channel 4 is a British media company. Yeah. So they're saying, what, there are many Britons, and what does Britain want to see? What does Britain want to read? Who in Britain wants to, will be super served by what it is that we're doing right. as a core? And then from there, there's a conversation about, and then are there ways to expand it to make it a bit more general? But there's something or some ones who are super served who become the core of this audience. And then from there, we can then say, and are there other things that we can draw from this? Are there ways of actually slicing this a little differently so that there are different groups who are not just interested in investors who can then be interested in human interest stories, these Homer-like journeys like the Odyssey or the Iliad? Mm -hmm. Then the next thing is, um, and if we can find those sort of stories that then are more general and are very much more appealing then how do we actually get those people to see? And the great thing about now with an artist is an artist has the opportunity using social media 
using digital means to be able to access, even if they're not going to be able to monetize, the question of accessing a certain number of people in order for those people to be able to then talk a little bit more generally about this or be willing to talk about this beyond is a distribution strategy that's as good as a record deal because you're now able to then take those kinds of that sort of deep interest and then through a community, you know, and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on. It takes a bit more work and it's sort of more relying upon you as opposed to a machine as the artist. But I've noted that these are both methods. So my two lessons are one, that you have to plan for distribution. Right. You, you, you're designing for distribution as you're doing things. You're not sort of, it's not an afterthought. And then and part of that is having to think about who the audience is. And then you have to, I believe, actually use social media. Having produced the content, the social media that's then associated with it, if you don't have a gallery because you're a painter, if you don't have a record company and you're a musician, if you don't have a publisher and you're a writer, then the question is how do you move beyond that in terms of your sort of the content having been produced, do you move to actually get it into people's hands? And I believe then that that's why you use social media in order to then get that, um, that word out into the world. And it doesn't work for everybody. Let's be clear. It's not as though that just is a magic, that that, 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 that works magic, but it is something that I believe has to be um, considered and has to be designed at the front end as opposed to bolted on in the back end. Um, right. that, that, that's what I believe. No, that that's very helpful. I suppose my follow up question would be to people that don't think like that. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's worth finding people who do? Because not all I know, some of the most talented people I know, they don't think like this at all. They think about their craft and they can play their instrument for eight hours, and that and that's fine. I, I what I also want to say is there's nothing wrong with that either. But I think in terms of being able to live from what you're making, um, is it worth finding people that think with that kind of mindset that you're talking about? So you do return to another point. The point being that I do believe this one person approach is very, very hard. It mm -hmm. Teaming up is a, is a much easier thing. I, I, I actually do think I, I want to I stop cold in my tracks. And I want to say, Matsy, when I met you at dinner, I did not hear you perform, didn't hear you sing, didn't hear any of your song. I didn't, you know, we talked about a few things, but it wasn't until much later that I actually got an experience of your, of your talent, mm -hmm. that extraordinary talent. I got an engagement around you in the beginning and that engagement around you, you were engaged. You were not self-centered. You were not you know, only looking at only looking at what you want to do, and that everyone is a tool to get to where you want. You were very much in the moment, and we had and we spoke about a number of things, and you were able to credibly talk about any number of topics, including your music, and sort of how you do what it is that you do, and how you supplement it by doing some other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So we talked about all those sorts of things. That is the that was the first thing for us to connect as people, and for me to care enough about your situation and to feel that it was important enough and more, more importantly not that it was that you were just good enough but that you also have sustainability mm. meaning that you are able you are you're there for the long term because what i don't like and what i can't do is a person who is who's dabbles you know a person who dabbles and a person who you know they're so multi-hyphenated i can do it all I'm a filmmaker, plus I'm a musician, plus I'm a pop, you know, all of those things are great. And I believe that all of your talents are being shown in what you're doing now. But that is your forensic approach to analyzing music, to being able to study a score, to being able to then produce uh, and to be able to orchestrate. Those are the things which are causing you to be able to do the podcast, but you've mastered your primary, mm. that your primary, and that's as a musician. Yeah. I could see that. And as I could see that, then I could say, and, and I could listen to, I'm working hard to be able to continue to be in this space. I haven't taken a job at the Bank of England so that I could then buy, you know, my Ferragamo shoes and then do this. You have actually taken, you, you, you've dedicated. And those, and I noticed very early in my life that there are so many dabblers who are very, very talented, but this goes to another point that we talked about. There's not that tenacity and not that ability to defer pleasure. Mm -hmm. 
because and there and the the issue is I I really do need to go on that vacation. I really need to buy that house in the country. I really do need to do these other sorts of things. So I would be willing to sacrifice my talent for those other types of things. And for me, I try and discern that very, very quickly. And I believe that people can see that very, very quickly. By the moment you walk into the room and the way that you walk into the room and the things that are important to you and the way that you present yourself helps me to see where your priorities are. And your priorities are your work. Your priority is your musicianship. And that comes through loud and clear. And so the reason I stopped myself and said, I want to talk about this is because that's the thing that people don't necessarily get. I'm coming to you and all the artists that you mentioned in the apartment, all of that has to do with people who have made as much of an investment. They might not have made the financial investment, but they have made a personal investment in all of that called their career. And they continue to do it at an extraordinary rate. And they're willing to take resources away from something else in order to make that happen. They are dyed in the wool. And if indeed you find someone like that, even a person who's a little less talented, but is tenacious, mm. I take little less talented and tenacious over extremely talented and, and flighty. Just, I think that there is a very, very big difference in terms of outcomes. It's, a, it's an investment decision. And I invest in artists the same way we invest. Michael and I invest in artists the same way that we invest in stocks and bonds and real estate. It is a, there's some, a little bit of an emotional connection, but we're really looking at sort of your future production and saying, now this is a person who has a future. Fantastic. My very last question, what music are you listening to? Oh my goodness. I have been listening recently to a series of, so my my dad died back in um, 2020, at the end of 2020. You know, he was my, he was the person on whom I've based my life wow. uh, and the person who has been of greatest influence to me. He's a guy who was a, you know, started off on the farm, the family farm, went to, went to school to um, study agricultural tech and then agricultural chemicals went to was taught for a while at the uh, Tuskegee University uh, Tuskegee Institute then university and then went to become an international um, executive in a Swiss chemical company so it was traveling back and forth to the U- to Europe in the 70s flying back and forth so it was very interesting to have a father like that now I live in in Europe dad loved loved a musical loved a musical meaning <laughs> you know he liked the great american musical and the great american songbook right. and so i would grow up on things everything from dion warwick to uh your arms are too short to box with god which is a musical to um what was another one uh the me nobody knows these are all musicals that are in the black vernacular mm-hmm. um and those have such great soundtracks so i have been listening to the soundtrack but he also liked he also liked oh god what is the guy's name glenn campbell who wrote rhinestone cowboy and wichita lineman so i have been listening to the um songbook of our lives together because dad taught me to love the american musical also and so you know i I attend musicals, not that much, you know, I go to see Hamilton, that sort of thing. But, you know, to listen to a great score is what I've been listening to recently. So yeah, that's what I've been listening to, some some lyrics and the poetry of lyrics and then the um, the orchestration, the sound and syncopation, you know, it's all sensational. That's beautiful. And it ends so well because we end where we started, legacy. We start with your legacy and we finish with your father, which is legacy and you continue it. Eric Collins, thank you for your time, for your insight. I feel very inspired. I feel pumped now to go and do some more work. So thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on uh, The Moneymaker. I look forward to you giving me your feedback on The Moneymaker because I know you will. So thank you very much, Matsy. It's been sensational. (laughs) Fantastic. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Eric Collins. I hope he has presented you with some fresh new perspectives. For those of you in the UK, if you haven't yet seen The Moneymaker, I thoroughly recommend it. You'll get a real sense of Eric's personality and his passion for people, business and impact. And to find out more about his work with Impact X, who knows, you may have a new business idea that is the next Spotify or Amazon that Eric mentioned. And his work in the arts, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Thank you so much for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. 
please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore or Instagram at holding up the ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L or email us at contact H-U-T-L at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, I'll be joined by art historian, writer, curator and director of London's Chisholm Gallery, Zoe Whitley. I grew up in the 80s when magazines still totally unapologetically said, you know, we can't put black models on the cover because the issue won't sell. And we have to be a viable business. And that was somehow, you know, acceptable. And the fact that that's no longer acceptable or tenable, or, you know, could be the thing that then tanks your magazine is, you know, a very good point for us to now have reached. Until next time.